0: Demise of the podcast with none other than Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing. Specifically today, my own writing as we get back into Demise of the Trinity. Uh, We're going to be reading Ken Price's chapter today and hopefully we will get to read more than one chapter, unlike the last two episodes or so. Some of these chapters are really long and they're kind of draining to read out loud, so there's that. But also... You know, I I noticed that even the audience is getting kind of tired of it because uh, I had less listeners this last episode than in any of the other episodes prior in this series. So either you're really busy, you just haven't really gotten around to listening to it yet, or you're just done. You're like, I'll start listening again when Patrick starts talking about Bukowski or whatever again or whatever you've listened to me for. My most popular episodes... uh, are my Flannery O'Connor and David Sedaris episodes? What ends up happening with my Bukowski episodes is that a lot of people listen to the first one when I read one of his novels, and then they they dramatically drop off after that. Some of some authors attract more consistency in listenership, but they don't have as as many listeners altogether. If that makes sense, so. Whereas a few hundred people might listen to one author, only like a small handful listen to another one. But that small handful will listen to like all four episodes. Anyway, how are you doing this week? I had to spend three days, technically four days, because my wife and I got there on Monday and we left Thursday. Uh, It felt longer, honestly. But I spent way too much time in Chattanooga. A place I never cared to to visit ever again. There's just nothing there. There's nothing there. For a place that has a lot of things, it doesn't have anything. Which is frustrating because uh, it felt like it wanted to be a big city. But I don't even think the population of Chattanooga is that big. Let's ask Siri. Hey Siri, how many people live in Chattanooga, Tennessee? get to the bottom of this oh well I was dead wrong Uh, it's not like a big 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 Atlanta style city but it's a little under 200,000 which is more than I thought because it wasn't super crowded or anything it's just the way that the city is structured makes no fucking sense anyway how are you doing you doing great I'm glad to hear it well let's just let's stop Let's stop rambling, okay? Just get the fuck over it, Patrick, okay? We're not here to listen to you talk about fucking Chattanooga. We're not even here to listen to you. We don't know what we're doing here. Because we're sure as shit not going to go listen to you play guitar. We're not going to go read your books. Fuck you, Patrick, you piece of shit. All right. Sorry, flashbacks. Light leaks in through the doorway as Freudlin walks over to his desk and feels around for something until his desk lamp illuminates him. A bunch of documents lie scattered in front of his squinting eyes. He should have said my name while the fireplace ignited, and he uses Jesus' powers to twirl me in the air. Instead, I'm watching a disappointingly human moment as he contemplates Fonda as a business rather than the Lord's work. If Freud then works for God to destroy the Antichrist, surely he completed his life's mission when Groan died. Harley. I speak for the first time since I left his house. He doesn't turn around with a dramatic clinging to his chest while saying my name in a gasp. Harley sets the papers down and settles in his evil world domination chair when he looks in the darkness for the man he once paid to kill strangers. With my hands resting in my trench coat pockets, I move into the light, waiting for him to speak. You should shave that beard, he says. It's your face that scares people. I don't want to intimidate you, I say. I've been away long enough, and I want Murray grown. He's irrelevant to me, Harley shrugs. Where's he hiding? Why would I care, Ken? It was his father who threatened the Lord. So you don't know. Without the theatrics, I pull out my revolver and fire at Freudland's desk, the blast not affecting his posture. If I can't intimidate this guy, then how can I get the information I need? Another round flies toward his head, and this time he disappears as the bullet goes through his chair. My face hits the floor, and a rush of dark needles stab my brain as I lurch around to see Freudlin standing over me. You are after Murray as revenge for something he had nothing to do with, Freudlin says. I cannot abide your sins any longer. And my palm. I hold the taser I hit in my sleeve, and don't bother aiming before it hits Freudland's leg, and he falls back with a low groan. As he lies stunned on the hardwood, I rise with the revolver and pull a bullet into his shoulder. His blood ricochets onto my trench coat. I'm going to need a reason to not kill you now, I say. I tried to utilize your power for God's virtue, he holds the bullet wound, and you're repaying him with a gun. Leaning down, I plant the barrel into his cheek and lean into his shoulder with my knee. He wails, the screaming echoing down the hall. Everyone on the top floor is gone for the evening. Why isn't he saving you then, I ask. Ken, Harley says. Get off me and I'll give you Murray's daughter. I allow Freudlin to crawl up from the floor to his desk where he takes off the bloody blazer to reveal his wounded shoulder. Grasping the hole, he illuminates the room with a glimmering white light that vanishes and his skin repairs. Veronica Price is in Philadelphia. He opens a legal pad and tears off some paper. She's living with some guy. Don't know anything about him. How'd you find her? I ask. Murray bought her a cell phone, he says. And Murray doesn't have a cell phone you can track? I ask. Do you want her address? Freudlin asks. Since Al passed, my father cut off Pat and Allison, so I never met Veronica Apparently, Allison died in a fire that she started with a bong in her apartment, but no one declared Veronica missing. The police who investigated Allison's death never acknowledged Veronica. With my father's experience serving Satan, I'm certain Lucifer shrouded her from legal danger. Alright, so we have to stop and ask a few questions. And I am going to acknowledge the fact that uh, I have details about what happened to Alice and how Murray covered up Veronica killing her by staging it as a fire that burned her up and probably other people in her apartment building. But aside from that, we have a reference to Pat and Allison, of course. Um, we know that Pat and Allison and Charles didn't have anything to do with each other. Uh, That's evident in Price of the Trinity as well because I think Ken acknowledges Al, but he doesn't have any kind of relationship with Pat or Allison, so we see that there as well. But Freudlin is giving Veronica to Ken for a reason. I mean, you don't really believe that Freudlin is unaware of Murray's location. And you have to understand... Freudlin is unaware that he's controlled by Lucifer so Lucifer would rather Ken go find Veronica than go find Murray because that's where Birch is and you know unbeknownst to Lucifer Birch is the figurehead of the Trinity so either Birch is going to die or Ken is going to die and that's a win for Lucifer either way no, no, no social media exists in Veronica's name, and I can't find any public records on her. So, the first time I'm going to see my cousin's daughter will be in Philadelphia. Hopefully, before I shoot her. But I need a way to get Murray. I'm still ignorant as to how my father sold his soul, and he never spoke about murdering people directly. Except the time he took me to the church. I gathered that Al and he took victims there, though they had different reasons for ending lives. So in the early earlier drafts of Demise of the Trinity, well, actually Price of the Trinity, when Charles actually became a character in the book because he wasn't in the first two drafts, the scene where he takes Ken to the church where he and Al kill people is very important throughout the novel because it's like Ken's loss of innocence moment. He sees who his father really is. I think that's in the final published draft of Price of the Trinity. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it is important. Al was a real dad who loved Pat, practiced law because he felt it was his professional calling, and happened to need some bloodshed to keep his monsters from usurping his normal life. Father probably began killing for Lucifer, grew a taste for inflicting suffering, and continued until his demise. But I didn't know until the day he picked me up early from school. I wasn't a social child, and... I thought I was better than just about anyone I encountered thanks to Father's egotistic approach to raising me. Junior high is like prison. You can't keep quiet and lurk away from attention. Someone will pick you out in the many faces because you stand out as an outlier. So when Matthew Sims decided to squirt a bottle of ketchup in my lap for a laugh, I took a fork to his neck. Other kids pushed me away before I could finish Matthew, who crawled into the floor with the fork still stuck in his muscle. I expected Father to yell, and instead he began to laugh in the same Porsche she gifted me during my freshman year in college as he drove past Atlanta into nothing. Here we have this recreation of the scene that Ken details in Price of the Trinity, and we see that, His memory is not really reliable because I'm pretty sure in Price of the Trinity, he talks about how he didn't have ketchup squirt in his lap. What happened was he had uh, a cup of marinara sauce slid across the table and got onto his shirt. But I don't even think that that's what resulted in his father having to come and speak to the principal. There's so many different kind of interweaving stories of this period. Another reason why I'll never write about Ken Price in high school is because there's a lot of mystery surrounding what he did as a teenager prior to the beginning of Price of of the Trinity. And there's a reason for that, because he's not a reliable narrator. Let's see. I figured he was going to punish me in some torturous manner that would traumatize me. I watched him hurt my mother so many times that I can't remember a specific moment when he'd pin her to the floor and violate her body in front of me. The gravel road pummeled against the porch until an old church appeared in a patch of weeds and overgrown kudzu. He didn't speak. That laugh persisted as he took me inside, opened one of the shutters, and the sunlight revealed a black man hanging from a cross behind the pulpit. Chained up like Christ, this guy had long scratches from a week of father coming each day to torture him by now he no longer possessed the spirit that once made him a man this guy was dead before he quit breathing and one of the reasons why we see this happening here uh, Charles and Walter are representative of a very specific type of white toxic masculinity and in doing so You know, I don't know that I would say that either of them are racially motivated in their specific crimes, but this is obviously, uh, he's obviously targeting this man for some reason. Father stabbed him in the heart, blood washing down his arm, and turned to me with his hand extended so I could see in the light. His grin displayed pride as if he was teaching me something and with the same hand, he drenched the side of my face as he whispered to me, Ken, you're so much like your father. Why is this light flickering in here? For God's sake, I'm turning this lamp off. Al was the only family member I loved without judgment and resentment because he saw potential in me as something other than a murderer. I'm aware of several things, though. When Murray knocked up Allison. Al pissed off Walter groan, which spiraled into someone strangling Al on his front lawn. Again, we have an example of Ken not being entirely reliable, because that's obviously not what happened. Charles shot Al. Now, in earlier drafts, what happened was it was Lucifer who showed up in an, in an ice cream truck, And strangled Al on his front lawn, but you know, at a certain point, I devised the idea of God's law where Lucifer is not allowed to directly harm any human. Since neither Pat nor Allison ever fessed up about the killer, and the police never properly investigated Al's death, I'm certain Lucifer used someone with legal immunity. How else would Charles Price get away with so many murders without being caught? Not only do I believe my father did in his brother, I'm certain my existence is a result of careful timing. In order to join the Trinity, a person's birth must coincide with the previous member's death. I theorize that Lucifer knew of someone in the Trinity that looked for their ending. Despite being immortal, we still age. These days, people are fine with checking out in their 70s. Not everyone wants to live to be 100, especially if that means being a walking sack of skin that no disease can kill. Satan probably pointed that person in Arthur Lindsay's direction right around the time my mother went into labor. But my theories aren't anything more than conjecture based on my life circumstances. Veronica is the last living person I share blood with. Maybe I should feel somewhat hesitant to end her life because... I'm going to shoot her in the head whether Murray gives up his location or not. I need his phone number from her cell, and maybe I'll call him while I have my 9mm crushing Veronica's temple, but I'm looking forward to his shock and anger when I do it. Normally, when Freudland gives me an address, I walk in, kill someone, and leave, but I haven't hurt someone I'm related to other than my father. Aroma Thorne deemed me a psychopath because I never felt remorse over my crimes, though I'm curious about Veronica. Freudlin mentioned that she has a boyfriend, who I assume she met and moved in with shortly after ending up in Pennsylvania. Though Lilith lived with me, I didn't love her, so this man might not mean anything to Veronica. Father never loved my mother, and I learned that keeping a homely image for people who glimpse at your life makes a better cover sometimes i find a woman who fucks well and likes my money enough to stay with me but i can't recall being in love whatever i had with lilith was insane lust again we have an example of him being an unreliable narrator uh, for one thing i do very much believe that ken loved lilith although maybe not in the sense that you you think of uh a healthy love, where you know two people are able to sustain a long-term relationship with one another without toxicity. I believe that he loved her as a possession and as someone who influenced his his life, and he got something out of. Uh, but it, not the the romantic love that you might think of. It's love, but it's not uh, anything but sick love. But he talks about, you know, having sex with other women here. And I can confirm that after the events of Price of the Trinity, Ken doesn't have sex with anyone but Lilith. And after having lost her to um, Arthur Lindsay and Aroma Thorne trapping him, uh, Ken doesn't have sex again for the rest of his life. Uh, He dies shortly after the events of this chapter. So, I want to know more about Veronica, yet I know anything but a quick execution means leaving more evidence of my arrival. People think Ken Price is dead. I can't maintain that facade if I walk into a busy street with blood on me after an audible shot. Learning what makes her Veronica might offer insight on how to deal with her death, She has gray hair. (laughs) Either she's trying to be different or somehow believes it's sexy. In those spaghetti straps and shorts, she might just be lazy. I don't see a guy, but he could be in another room. If I read her basic personality through her appearance, Veronica wouldn't be with someone who'd leave her in a room alone unless he's gone. I can't. Make out the book she's reading while her legs lie spread on the couch and hair up looking unkempt in a bun. She's not paranoid and doesn't believe someone's after her. This is her new home and I'm a peeping Tom with a sniper rifle. I'm capable of doing it now. Her head would explode all over that nice brown leather sofa and splash against the large TV screen her boyfriend worked for. But she's not... Conjuring the devil or trying to end the world, Veronica could never hurt me, and she's innocent and of any sin I foresee. However, her blood carries Satan's power, and she's capable of havoc that she probably doesn't realize. The boyfriend offers further interpretation. Once he arrives, I'll see Veronica as she wants him to see her, which is almost who she really is. That might take hours, so I lie down the rifle and sit behind the ledge. How can I get him back home? With a scope hovering over so many civilians' heads, I find a man crossing the street with a gray blazer, white hair circling a bare scalp, and nowhere in particular to go. A shot echoes in the street as he falls, a car braking to avoid running over his corpse, while the truck rear-ends the frightened driver. People stop to look. A few women scream, and when I peer at Veronica again, I see her looking out the window at the mess underneath her chipped toenail polish. Pulling out her phone, Veronica selects a contact, presses the receiver to her ear, and begins the process she needs him to come get her so they'll go somewhere safe i planned on following them to wherever but once they leave their vacant apartment might teach me something what is ken trying to to get out of this he's not someone who likes to play with his prey usually he's very cut and dry when he kills people it's not elaborate but he has a curiosity about veronica He's judging her, and he is trying to come up with a reason why to kill her, and her having satanic blood is his number one reason, but he sees her as someone who's not worthy of living to begin with because of who she is and how she presents herself. The brown-haired, beautiful boy shows up, embracing the damsel who beckoned for his safe, warm embrace. He doesn't have a worried look or tears on his cheeks though this guy looks through their moment at the window she stood a few minutes beforehand when Veronica lets him go the boyfriend doesn't ponder the situation on the street yet immediately looks at the rooftop where I stand he doesn't see Ken Price the boyfriend glimpses at a bearded silhouette with a rifle who runs out of sight he'll feel the urge to run down his stairs across the street to confront the gunman, but I won't be there. I jump down into the alleyway, my legs unbroken by the fall, and find the parking deck where my Nissan Rogue sits. There was something here that I noticed as I was reading. Uh, the brown Oh, the Brown-Hair Beautiful Boy. That is a reference to, of all things... A, I think an Aqua Teen Hunger Force commentary track. I used to spend a lot of time watching Aqua Teen and Space Ghost Coast to Coast on DVD. And so, of course, I watched each episode that had a, a DVD commentary countless times. And that I don't know. I don't remember. It's been so long. I don't remember who said it. Uh, but they were talking about how they had always heard about such and such. But they'd never met him. And when I finally did, he turned out to be this brown-haired, beautiful boy. But Ken is using it in a in a mocking sense because Birch isn't someone who's, you know, hot. He's just a very plain-looking guy. And the uh, damsel who beckoned for his si- safe, warm embrace. You know, he, Ken's being cheeky with the audience here. The thing about Ken is that it's almost like he realizes that he's in a book. you know. I think one of my reviews of Price of the Trinity said that. And it's very true. He, he seems almost aware that there is a fourth wall there. Five minutes later, Veronica and her boyfriend drive past me in the same garage, unsuspecting of the stranger sitting in the passive SUV. Unless he's got a security system, I'll pick his lock in less than 30 seconds and we'll be out of the apartment in 10 minutes. The interior looks like Hannibal Lecter's cell, if he had access to a library. The bare walls and bookcases that reach the ceiling are far more domineering than I expected. This guy Veronica's dating is a lunatic. The collection of Blu-rays reminds me of my father, but Charles Price knew decorating his living space meant not scaring away everyone who entered. If Veronica thinks this is normal, then she's as bent as her boyfriend. Most of his food comes from a can. Hormel chili, Chef Boyardee mac and cheese, Campbell's chicken noodle, mushrooms, peanut butter, and a large plastic bin of cashews. The freezer holds ice cubes, and the fridge is full of soda. I'm struggling to figure out how two people survive on this shit, so they probably eat out a lot. So, the boyfriend has money, loves film and literature, yet lives in that isolated realm. There's not even a board game in here. The bedroom has an unframed mattress with a single quilt on top of a fitted sheet, a dresser and a small closet, but there's a locked trunk here, probably holding whatever cash and secrets this bastard has. He definitely doesn't work a straight job, so he's not going to have a bank account. No social media either. I'll have to kill him too, and this prison he calls an apartment will gather dust. They'll be back later tonight. I doubt he has a safe house, and he won't believe they're in immediate danger since the sniper took out a pedestrian. The way he looked at me suggested he isn't afraid of being shot, though. He's never heard of Ken Price, I bet. Sitting behind the kitchen counter, I wait, holding my eager 9mm. With a generic gun, the police assume it's gang-related. If I rough up the place, they'll think someone robbed the boyfriend. Afterward, I'll find Murray, finish the Grown Clan, and look for a new adventure to live within. What do you think Ken was going to do after all this? Because, you know, even as the author, I'm trying to think, what what would Ken have done after he ended the Murray Clan, as he puts it, the Murray Grown Clan? I don't think he would have known what to do with himself. He may have, you know, tracked down Lilith if he'd been able to find her, I doubt he would have but I think that Lucifer probably wouldn't be done with him and would find a different way to manipulate him anyway let's see, where the fuck am I? (laughs) maybe I should pack some clothes Veronica opens the door and we can stay in a hotel tonight Philadelphia has always been a giant shooting gallery, the boyfriend says. Birch, she says, please. Birch? Not the intellectual property thief. He's worked for Fonda, stole all of central network schematics dating back to the 80s, and he provided all of their server locations to Freudland. I never met him, but Freudland was insistent on the man's privacy. It was essential to his Effectiveness to the company. Isn't it interesting that we have Birch and Ken Price are probably aware of one another? Ken is definitely aware of Birch for that matter, and Birch has done work for both Central Network and Fonda. He's a double dipper, that son of a bitch. Knowing Lucifer, this isn't a coincidence. Veronica can't find safety with Ken Price after her daddy. But with the world's best thief? Well, there went my bird's Bees. I pity myself for not taking the credit for killing Birch because he's impossible to nab. When the lights come on, I rise from the darkness and take aim at Birch. They're both headed for the couch, not expecting an assassin to dismantle their brains. Pulling the trigger... I expect the man to fall to the floor and commence staining his f- floor. <laughs> I love that about my writing here. As Veronica turns to see me, her pale f- her face pale and eyes bulging, I walk over to grab the phone in her hand. These damn millennials and their cell phones. Again, a reference to the internet, because when the term millennials was really in vogue, and it still is, but, you know, early 2010s. I didn't even know that I was a millennial. You know, It was just a a term that was being used for young people, even though it's supposed to be Gen Y. Oh, boy. I think it's hilarious that after Gen Z, we're like, oh, let's just restart and and call them Gen Alpha, as if they need any sort of ego boost. Anyway, I think it's all stupid. It's just a way of separating us and making us have a reason to dislike one another for whatever odd thing. I don't know. People are stupid, especially when it comes to age. Okay, where the fuck was I reading from? Jesus. All right. Thank you. I tug it from her hand. Punching her in the neck, I nudge her to the floor and keep a gun on her as I scroll through her contacts. The only one listed is Birch. She probably memorized the number, yet her recent calls are clear. "'Murray,' I say. "'What's his number?' The couch begins to rise from the floor, and as I hear him moving behind me, I don't realize I miss my shot until I'm under the leather and wood pinned to the ground. My head goes numb for a moment, eyes unable to focus, and stomach forces vomit through my throat." As my mind steadies, I roll out from under the furniture and see Birch standing over me. Price, he says. Veronica fires the gun at me before Birch finishes his no-doubt ambitious monologue and stands back with a nine-millimeter still smoking as she realizes I'm not wounded, although my head hurts unlike it ever has. Give it to me, Birch holds out his hand. The dumb fuck turns his attention to Veronica, so I kick his shin, forcing him down with my feet wrapped around his leg. When I jump on him, Veronica beats the butt of the weapon into my back, so I slap her and punch Birch to quiet him so I can focus on her. I'm looking for Murray, I grasp the 9mm. Why don't you just tell me his number and I'll go? I don't have it, she spits. Then she's worn out her use. In this scenario, I'll leave without anything but blood on me, but surely Murray will know his daughter's dead. Her gray hair swishes in the air as the blast forces the bullet through her face, and with that, my last blood is gone. Behind me, Birch squirms on the floor, a a broken coffee table covering him in glass shards. He should have a few in his back, yet he looks up at me with a burning determination. My gun fires, then nothing. Jesus, I can't find my breath. Pulling a switchblade out, Birch stabs my shoulder. And I didn't expect to feel anything until a sharp opening forces my spine to go limp. This motherfucker just stabbed me. I've never been stabbed before. No one's ever broken my skin. He's the figurehead. The one man on the planet who can kill me. No goddamn wonder Lucifer put Veronica here. This pain and realization. Come at me. As Birch pulls the knife out, ready to slash my throat or puncture a lung. But I bet he's not a fighter. So I punch him in the chest, tumble away, and get to the window as he rises to finish me. I have to get outside, and then I can worry about the wound and bleeding out. The fucking window latch isn't budging, and Birch is only a few feet away with the blade still red from my blood. Tugging on the bookshelf near me, I turn over the volumes of literature he no doubt collected through years of pleasure reading and run for the door. Maybe, since I killed his girlfriend, damaging his property is gilding the lily. Help! I shout in the hallway, He's got a knife! I don't mean to sound so cowardly, but someone might come out and block his path. I can't handle the police, yet I'd rather kill a few cops than have this guy pull a Terminator on me. At the stairwell, two women carry up their groceries and stand there with their mouths agape as a bleeding man tries to rush past them. That's when I feel a foot digging into my leg and lose balance. Tumbling down the stairs, I land on my ankle and the bone pops before I can pick myself up. Another crisp pain forces my lungs to collapse. With my vision unable to clear, Birch, Birch's footsteps sound like he's stomping in a reverb tank. The women throw their bags at his head and I'm able to slide down the stairwell as they begin to pound him with whatever rolled out of their paper sacks. I love city women's audacity. They think they're saving an innocent victim. When I'm in the lobby, I'm limping to the doorway and hoping he's subdued enough so I have a minute to get into the street, maybe find a cab. Getting to the parking deck won't suffice. Birch isn't going to stop running after me. Doesn't matter where I hide, he'll get me. This is the only moment in anything that I've ever written with these characters that Ken Price is humbled. And he knows what's coming. He knows that even if he leaves Philadelphia, Birch is going to come after him. So, you know, this may be the only time he's ever regretted killing someone as well. But the next chapter is from Birch's perspective. Our introduction to Birch has been through two characters we have the mention of uh, him in uh, Veronica's chapter and now Ken's chapter and finally we have a chapter from his perspective who knew that he would be the character to kind of carry this series of books because i didn't when i started writing this shit because he wasn't even in the first draft it's pretty wild isn't it i didn't i started writing this in 2010 and i didn't come up with birch until the summer of 2014 As my mom chokes on her own blood, legs spasming under dad's weight, my tears turn to steam on my cheeks as the blood pumps through my face. The drunken bastard bellows with pleasure as mom's life expires as soon as he finishes under her torn, cut vagina. Once he catches his breath, he looks down at her and says her name a few times before slapping her in the face. And his calls to awaken her turn into a scream as he realizes that he's murdered his wife. So earlier in the book, Birch kind of takes credit for killing both of his parents. Uh, Of course, he didn't kill his mother, but the thing is is that he feels like he could have saved her, so he might as well have killed her. But also... We have some inkling of why all this took place in the novel Birch. Now, I don't want you to think that everything in, in Birch is like the Bible, and that it's somehow grounded in objective fact for this franchise of books. The thing is is that what the events in Birch are kind of questionable. It's up to the reader to determine whether or not they actually happen, so... In one version of things, as Birch learns about his past, Lucifer found out about Birch early on in his life, and originally, Birch's father was not like this. But, let's keep reading. Then he turns to me, tied up in a kitchen chair. I remember he was on his fourth bottle when he dragged it across the kitchen linoleum, digging a "'trail into the carpet from the living room into the bedroom. "'The cord came from the bed of his truck. "'Dad was about to beat me for the hell of it, as he did before. "'But when Mom thought torturing me was too far, "'he broke a bottle on her back and commenced his attack. "'The first punch knocks him down. "'Taking a pull on the Bud Light bottle, he hits me again, "'expecting me to bleed.' He'd like to kill me, too. The glass from the carpet he tries to slice me with doesn't tear my skin. A knife pulled from his back pocket appears and stabs at my face. But not even a scalpel will scratch me. Wow! He sits on my mom's corpse. Can't even use a goddamn knife. I must be pretty fucked up. Dad passes out after another swallow. I slip my hands through the cord and look at my family on the carpet I once played on. I didn't appreciate how Mom allowed Dad to drink more. It wasn't a scenario where he lost his job or she stopped letting him fuck her. Dad drank before I was born and he kept chasing the bottle after bottle to get a buzz. By now he chugs it like a fat kid guzzles Coke. So I have no answer as to why he began to hit me. It started when I was 15, and it ends with his life now. Taking the knife, I don't want to be dramatic about it. I put it through his chest, and he doesn't wake from his drunken slumber. There's not a savory moment of me watching him suffer. He dies more peaceful than my mom. I wish I felt more hatred for them. Instead, I'm numb thanks to the depression perpetually swimming in my veins. So that's the thing about Birch. Uh, one thing I'll note before I go into this little tidbit is that anytime I imagine like a movie or a series made about this, I always imagine when we finally see Birch's perspective on things, uh, it, op- it opens with this scene, no music, And Birch, while his parents lie on the ground, putting the knife through his father's chest. And uh, a focus on kind of the silence that's in the room as it happens. But Birch is the manifestation of my own depression. And he grew as a character throughout several drafts, but originally he was... A minor character, I've talked about this before, but you can listen again. And Monsoon was supposed to be the big shit in this book. I conceived her in like June or July. I want to say July of 2014. So I might as well start being honest and talk about this because it's a huge part of my life. And, you know, there might be someone listening who was affected by this directly, but. Uh, this is the reason why Birch exists, so I might as well talk about it. So um, I was in an eight-year relationship with a girl who I met online when I was 14, and we moved in together after her her parents got divorced. My mother was generous enough to let her live with us. Uh, She finished high school a semester early and came and lived with us. Uh, and our relationship before that wasn't great. I mean, there are obviously highlights to it. I'm not saying that it was all bad, but it wasn't healthy. You know, she did things that were bad. I did things that were bad. But by the time we got to the eight-year mark in 2014, I was still dealing with a tremendous amount of depression and in May of 2014, I had a breakdown because I could feel this overwhelming sense of loneliness. And I finished a summer class. I canceled my other class for that, that summer semester because I wanted to be with her because I needed someone. And she told me, well, I'm going to go up to Maine to uh, spend time with my friend. Who happened to be a lesbian? I don't know what happened while they were up there. Um, I've, I, I, I can't really s- speculate about that on here, but you can speculate. But anyway, um, you know, I, I went through it, and so I went through a period of time for over two months where I was suicidal every single day, and I don't, I don't know what really sustained me through that other than kind of the hope that once I saw her again, that everything would be okay. But of course that didn't happen and that didn't really have much to do with her. It was me. Um, but then, you know, there was a time when I was crying, sitting in a bathtub with no water in it. And, uh, I said I don't want to live anymore and she says I have got to go and so she left the room and so I sought solace through talking to people random strangers online and I met a girl in Scotland and um, the thing about This is that I'm not sure what I was told that was the truth. How much of it was a lie? Was I being catfished? Um, It was more than likely a a mixture of both. And this girl uh, faked her death. And uh, I wrote the character of Monsoon based on her. And Birch was supposed to be kind of like me. But then... When I lost contact with her when I thought she was dead, I grew very resentful because I thought she'd committed suicide. I didn't really have a way to confirm whether or not she was dead or alive because the only way I knew her was through social media and she abandoned all of her social media. Uh, She did eventually post or someone posted on her DeviantArt, I think, but um, I messaged them. And didn't get a response. I had interactions with the person that I thought was her friend on Tumblr. And then I found out in May of 2015 that she was still alive. So I went almost a year thinking that this person that... I wasn't in love with her. Um, I thought maybe I was. Uh, but it wasn't a romantic relationship. It was very platonic um, but I thought you know, so highly of her, obviously. And if she'd you know, said, hey, come be in Scotland with me, I probably would have done it. And it probably would have ended very badly. So, Birch is the result of that period of time. And, yeah, Birch is the manifestation of my severe depression and the wish to die. And I eventually got over that. Probably in part due to writing about it. So, let's get into the chapter again. Where did I leave off? I leave with the fresh certain jeans on, my Nikes, and the $94 in cash my parents had between them. Their credit and debit cards will leave trails. The truck and mom's Versa have license plates, and the only hope I have at no one trying to find me is if the police see dad's sperm on mom and the cord around the chair he tied me in. From that, I, maybe they'll figure it's best I'm gone. But at 16, they'll probably put out an Amber Alert and put my face up at supermarkets. I have no intention of surviving alone, though. Eventually, my brain's emotional poison will wish me death. But the numbness, unable to even feel the pain, is worse. I haven't cried in months which is the surest sign that I'm beyond the edge. And when you have tears, there's comfort and release. Once I get to I-85, I pull my thumb out, hoping someone will pick me up and take me down the road. Never hitchhike, but the fear of death prevents me from caution. And when the first semi stops, I find myself feeling relief, which is more than I've felt in months. I'm able to breathe without worry. There's a freedom in leaving your problems remaining stagnant in the place you walk away from and they ease away the further the further you get. A few hours ago I ended my dad's life after watching my mom die. I don't know what happiness feels like, but relief is better than an orgasm. Ending up in Charleston, I walk downtown to the fountain that looks out toward the ocean. By the way, you don't get to Charleston through I-85, and Birch didn't live anywhere near (laughs) I-85. Should I fix that? No, we'll leave it in. Uh, Fiction doesn't have to be reality. I'm not concerned about money, my parents, the police, or my disease. The water reflects life. As if, as if I'm finally out of the darkness. A bittersweet image. Because even though I'm free, I still don't want to live. From here, I don't have any place to stay. Can't go to school as a m- missing kid. No one will hire a 16-year-old runaway whose parents died in curious circumstances. I knew when I left, the best scenario was back home with the police. They could have put me in foster care, made sure I finished school, and then maybe I'd had a better life. But that's uncertain. I want to control my fate, and I want it soon. To lighten the mood, I'm gonna pop one of these Bussies mints. Mints, and my my wife and I stopped at Bussies. Buckies, just call it bussies for fun. And I, I really like these mints. I don't know where I've had this cinnamon flavor before. It's great. Uh, this is entertaining podcasting. I have to say. Last month, I took Dad's Ruger handgun in my to my head, turned off the safety, pulled the lever back, and pulled the trigger. Only for my ears to start ringing and the bullet to end up in my bedroom wall didn't make sense when i tried to swallow the gun and fire i spat out around the week before while dad was passed out on the living room floor and mom went to bed i used the kitchen knife to slice from my elbow up to my wrist no blood when i tried to stab myself in the chest the blade bounced like rubber I can't remember when I took Dad's sour mash with some of Mom's Percocet, but I woke up the next day with a bad hangover. When Dad hit me while Mom tried to pull him away, I felt the punches, but I don't have any bruises. I wish he killed me last night, but apparently I'm not worthy of death. Standing on the bridge, the car's gusting behind me. I hope I don't come out of the water. The fall will knock me out, crush my skull, and break some limbs, and the water will drown me. Perfect suicide. So I close my eyes, fall, and black. A force pulls me up under my arms. Grass scratches at my back, and my coughing overpowers any sound hitting my ears. But when I open my eyes... I'm not surrounded by police or concerned citizens. It's a dark-skinned woman with brown eyes, eyes like... Did I say with brown eyes? It's a dark-skinned woman with brown hair, eyes like eternity's abyss. And she's not screaming for help. Her fingers rub under my chin, pushing the hair from my forehead. And mouth opens in a nurturing gesture, forming a smile. Hello there, duckling, she says. I black out, but it feels like I blink and I'm laying on the couch wrapped up in a blanket with a towel around my head. My eyes seem to swim up on the ceiling, and when I try to focus them, they relax and fall back again. With a hand behind my head, I smell lavender as the woman helps me drink tea. I've watched a lot of people jump from that bridge, she says. None of them are still breathing. Lucky bastards. I'm tired of my brain's chemicals waging war on my body. Couple that with life's never-ending uncertainty, and I definitely prefer nothingness over existence. Even hell couldn't provide as much torment. What's your name? She Lies her head on my chest. K, Oh no, duckling. She shakes her head. That won't do. So, um, originally I didn't have a backstory or rationale for uh, Birch having the name Birch. I just gave him the name Birch. He didn't originally have the name K. His full name is Kay Abercrombie, of course. And there's a story behind that. Um, so, uh, first of all, my great grandfather, who I was very close to before he passed away, his last name was Abercrombie, and I found out that I have cousins on my mother's side, and I actually have a cousin whose name is Birch, and I must have subconsciously, you know, taken that name from him, but he has a brother, and his name is Kay. So that's where I got K from. Also, and an interesting twist of fate, uh, K is the name of the friend that my friend in Scotland introduced me to over the internet. Um, I don't know if K was real or not. Kids in the schoolyard didn't like that name either. My mother never explained why she gave me a girl's name. Oddly enough... Dad never mocked it. He disparaged me in other ways, like making fun of my scrawny build or how I favored Mom instead of a man. Then what's your name, I ask. When I was 18, she says, I changed it to Monsoon. What's your real name? Monsoon is my real name, she puts down the T. My given name is dead, gone. Gone. I should call myself Typhoon then. She's eccentric enough taking a suicidal stranger in. Her name fits her beauty. Normally the oddballs aren't model material. Or if they are, there's the adage don't stick your dick in crazy that eludes me right now. Interestingly enough, Monsoon and Birch don't really have a romantic relationship. It is purely platonic and... Oddly enough, probably the healthiest one that birch is in. Your arms are so skinny, she fits her hand around my wrist. Like a birch tree. I don't eat much, I say. Are you hungry, birch tree boy? Monsoon is 22, has a degree in computer science, is the daughter of a Baptist minister, and works for Central Network Cybersecurity Division in Charleston. That's enough to keep her apartment and utilities up, but she makes real money through hacking. Since both gigs only require a few hours each week, Monsoon took walks each morning to the nearby bridge that overlooks the river. That's how she spotted me. When I survived the fall, she didn't pull me off the shore to save me. Monsoon saw potential in my invincibility. A 22-year-old woman with an average of 60 years left to live doesn't want to spend it all in her apartment. I'm crashing on her couch for a week before she brings it up. There's a t-shirt shop that closes late. Monsoon paces around me in her USC sweater and track shorts. I mean, they're making money out of the ass, but the police aren't around then. Most of the beachcombers are gone, all the other shops and restaurants are closed, but this one stays open because maybe 10 people will show up after 11 and they all might spend 50 bucks apiece. You spend a lot of time monitoring this t-shirt shop, I say. Why are you telling me about it now? I want to rob it. In a movie, I'd spit out my soda laughing, call her ridiculous, and she'd reassure me that she's got it all figured out and there's something in it for me other than money. In reality, I don't give a shit about life enough to say no. And your plan? I have a gun and a hockey mask. Monsoon leans under her television and pulls a compact pistol out. You don't need to use it, obviously. It's just to frighten the cashier and anyone who tries to stop you. That's not a plan, I say. I'll drop you off, she says. You'll walk up from the beach because the shop has an entrance in front and behind for people who come in from the ocean or the street. So, I hold them up, I say, and run out to the car. No, she says. You run down the street. That's fucking stupid. I get that Monsoon doesn't want anyone to see a robber in her car because a license plate will lead right to us. She expects me to run on foot, though. I'm not the Flash. A cop could tackle me and he wouldn't need to kill me. Just handcuff me. I'm invulnerable to physical damage, not the law. The store is near a back road, Monsoon says. Even if I can't pick you up, there's the woods. Are police afraid of trees? A cop... Won't be there for at least ten minutes. What do you have to gain from this, I ask. This is a test run, she says. Monsoon drives away, and I walk with the mask on and pistol in hand, but I sense an army of cops will surround the place. Maybe some guy will try to be hero, and I'll shoot him. Then I'll be a wanted murderer on top of armed robbery. And what if Monsoon is dumping me here with no intention of picking me up? Yet, when I get to the entrance, a large opening which the managers close with the garage door, there's no hesitation or fear stopping my hand from raising the pistol. There's not even a this-is-a-robbery stick-up line leaving my lips before I fire around into the ceiling. That's more effective than shouting, of course, There's more of a chance of police showing up now. The bleached blonde girl in a yellow tank top pulls the register, tossing the cash on the counter, which only amounts to a little over 500 Not worth the crime. When I see her tears and genuine trauma growing, I know she'll remember me each night she tries to sleep, and tears will soak her pillow while coping with the questions as to why someone robbed her at work. I want to put the money down and leave. That won't fix this, though. It's already an armed robbery, so I have to finish. When I walk out, there's a police car pulling up without a siren, but he's here for me. I'm a shit shot, and he's not going to let me run. Why am I not more afraid? I have this instinct to follow Monsoon's plan to completion and run into the woods until she pulls up. Drawing his gun, the officer aims and yells to drop the weapon, of course. To him, I'm a psychopath with a hockey mask, and I'll probably fight. A curiosity draws me into him, though. I walk closer, Monsoon's pistol firm in my palm, and he fires. The surprise in his eyes comes after the second shot, when he confirms to himself that the bullets aren't dropping me. He tells me to stop. Yet I keep coming. What will he do if I put that barrel right to my head? He should call for backup. And maybe someone's on the way. But it's the intensity that he's not in control that freezes him. Sorry. I aim at his leg and fire. Another crime. At least he can't chase me. So I book it across the street allowing the trees to shroud me. Though my footsteps echo in the leaves and damp grass, no one will be able to catch me in time. But will Monsoon abandon me? When I killed my dad, I didn't comprehend the seriousness until later. When I took off the wet towel Monsoon wrapped around my hair, I went to the bathroom and saw myself for the first time since I left home. It wasn't even 24 hours beforehand. I see my mom's eyes, nose, and thin lips. Dad thought I favored her more. But I was a skinnier version of him. Perhaps it was because I reflected the less masculine part of him, or maybe I didn't look enough like him. He saw failure in me either way. Both my parents worked straight jobs. Dad was a mechanic and Mom a bookkeeper. They weren't extraordinary people with interesting lives. We merely existed in our middle-class house with two vehicles and a barren backyard. The Dollar General was 20 minutes away. The only notion I had of Atlanta or city life was through television and movies. I'm not sure what I am to Monsoon. We're friends, but is there a romantic angle there? She's not a typical Southern Baptist minister's daughter, and that she's rebellious with her sorority sisters, blue jean shorts, and sunglasses planted on her scalp. There's an exotic quality in her dark features, and I'll admit attraction, but I'm incapable of developing them beyond the acknowledgement of her beauty. My depression doesn't allow feelings outside of the Mississippi devil-fearing blues. So, uh, one of the reasons why he's, and he's not saying it here, But, you know, depression can cause uh, not impotence. Impotence implies the total inability to have arousal as a man. What's actually happening with him is that he's so depressed that he has no interest in sex whatsoever. Yet, I feel liberated running through the trees, wondering if I'll escape the law. And the headlights headlights near the two-lane road might mean a jail cell or freedom. I keep coming back to that notion, as if it means something. Aren't we born? Aren't we born free? We possess free will, yet society, our parents, and peers constrain us. There's nothing but emotional ties that keep us bound to our domestic surroundings. All right, duckling. Monsoon kicks open the passenger door. Let's go home. We hit a target next. Instead of the register, I go into the stock room with a ski mask. Before closing and come out with a shopping cart full of of PlayStations. When I make it up to the front, there's a security guard and one of the stock boys. I flash the gun, and the guard tries to keep me there before the police arrive. I roll through after firing a shot through the front door. Taking two systems from the cart, I leave the rest in the parking lot before running across the highway to Monsoon's car. We keep the PlayStation for the apartment. Monsoon dates... Oh, whoa. Whoa. Nope, Freudland slip. Monsoon dares me to rob a gun dealer next. I walk in, show him the pistol, and the goatee and ponytail and overalls pretends to cooperate before pulling a shotgun. He fires. I fall on the ground, get up, and smile. There's a bag of 20s, 50s, and 100s in a grocery bag in my hand as I go out the back door. We buy a station wagon from Craigslist, Monsoon has the hockey mask on this time and park in front of a jewelry store without a plan other than get in and out. I gather the clerks against the wall, fit everything I can into a sack, and we dump the car near the beach after dumping most of the take. Monsoon pockets a ruby with a gold band and some pearl earrings. Our, robberly, our, ooh, our robberies escalate, which means... We have a reputation amongst law enforcement and the criminal underground. When we go out to the bars, tattoo bikers and black guys and all red, talk about some bulletproof guy who's doing small hits. They know I'm a skinny nobody with a mask, though. But one night, we're eating at a Mexican dive in North Charleston with a Selena cover band playing just loud enough that we have to sit close and shout at one another. We put our orders in margaritas are on the table and the cheese dips almost gone by the time this balding man with a thin goatee and distinctly muscular face sits across from us Monsoon leaves for the bathroom without excusing herself and the stranger walks and the stranger looks at me as if he knows every crime I committed in the past year so before I talk about Murray here Uh, My brain can't quite make it past this line here. When we go out to the bars, tattooed bikers and black guys in all red to talk about some bulletproof guy who's doing small hits. I'm trying to think. Tattooed bikers and black guys in all red. Is there a gang that I'm unaware of that I was right? is Is this from Grand Theft Auto or something? I'm trying to think because it seems like an odd detail to me. I can't really get too hung up on it. I wrote it years ago. But I'm I'm actually trying to, to try and remember. It must be a gang thing that I've just slipped in here. Or maybe a reference to a movie or something. I don't know. Your friend... Oh, I have to do my Murray voice. <laughs> Your friend keeps telling me about you, he says. You go by Birch, right? I look at his gold Rolex and the suede jacket tailored for his build, and all I figure is he's either monsoon sugar daddy who works for Central Network. She takes calls from some guy she won't name, and then I watch her infiltrate a rival company's network or seize information. I'm not their hacker. She is, but I'm learning. I'm Murray Groan. He holds out his hand. You've probably seen my father, Walter, on TV. Why are we talking, Mr. Groan? I ask. Because your monsoon friend didn't ask you to become a criminal for fun, he says. And we agree you're competent enough to start working for me. I'm not 18 yet, and this guy wants to hire me for some sketchy corporate shit. He doesn't keep talking as I purposely ignore him for a moment to look at the Mexican lady wearing a sequined bustier singing Biddy Biddy bomb, bomb, with her offbeat dancing and sour notes blending in with the attitude acoustic guitar and casillo keyboard. Monsoon walks around the band as she sits at the bar and waves to me with the least sympathetic smile she can evoke. You want me because no one can kill me, I say. I'm not a good thief. You're right. Murray says, and the six figures I'll pay you for each job will make you a better thief. That's all you want, huh? I ask. No killing or hurting people? I don't need you for that, he says. I need you for your anonymity and bulletproof skin. Do you think a cash advance might sway you? In the gravel parking lot, Murray gives me a briefcase, nods, and drives away money certainly says more than words of course monsoon isn't as pretty as before she's used me for a year probably got a finder's fee and expects me to go home with her basically my money would be hers too but my burning stomach tells me I'm never going to see her again because I'm not her lap dog I call an uber Block Monsoon's number, and I'm on a plane to Philadelphia because it's the first flight to a major city available. That's how I ended up in this apartment with my bookcases of movies, CDs, and novels. My first girlfriend's blood still sits in a puddle where Ken Price ended her life. A few dark, damp towels soak up the residue. I wrap Vicky's body in newspaper. And tied two jumbo garbage bags around her frame before dropping her, at the Skaholi Skol- River. Let's just say that's how you pronounce it. I haven't had a chance to cry or reflect on her. The anger that sits in my stomach burns as it did when I left Monsoon at the Mexican restaurant. I don't remember writing this. I, I remember in the draft before this that. You know, Veronica was revived when he dropped her body in a river. Um, but I don't remember writing this part about him actually cleaning up the mess. I don't even remember him going back to the apartment. And with my apartment clean, the dawn illuminating the room, I sit on the couch I shared with Vicki, with the only remnant of her existence on the coffee table. A hairband with a single strand of her curled around black rubber I grasped the circle in my palm my eyes finally feel warmth from tears wanting to break through my emotional barricade one breaks through swiftly falling on my cheek I cannot remember when I last cried so this hairband thing is kind of kicking me in the emotions right now because um, my ex and I there was one morning where she had fallen asleep the night before with her hairband, band um, and it was now just sitting in the band so I, I took it and I said I'm going to keep this it's going to be my keepsake for when you leave me one day and so from then on, she would call those bands Patrick's Keepsake. We had a dog together named May, and the dog would sometimes try and take it from her. And she says, no, that's Patrick's Keepsake. When I stop sobbing and recall what happened, the moments distort in my mind. Ken fled so quickly, and I lost Vicky in less than five minutes. The one trope I gather from this incident is Murray groan. Ken isn't aware that Murray's paid me for intellectual property theft and he was here for Vicky yet claimed all he wanted was Murray's phone number. Of course Ken was going to murder Vicky either way. But there's no there's a connection here. Vicky knows Murray and Ken's after Murray. I know of Ken through my work for Central Network because he attacked their servers and Murray consistently requested information on Fonda Communications. Harley-Freudlin had a hard-on for making certain Central Network wouldn't survive the next five years and his plans to resurrect Fonda as a true competitor aligned with Price's server attacks. While I could comfort Murray on his relation to Vicky, I'd rather find Price. He's bound to like his privacy for the same reason I do. When you're dealing in blood and bullets, the police and victims like to hassle you. But Freudland will know where he is. I already know where to find Freudland. Packing some underwear, a pair of jeans, some black t-shirts, and my Sig sour, I throw an overnight bag into my Mercedes 200 W123 and head for Atlanta. The ambience of the highway offers some solace. High frequencies mixed with low thumps and 18 wheelers. I imagine wherever Vicky ran from it was probably where I'm driving. When I landed in Philadelphia I bought this car via Craigslist ad because I knew I wouldn't be able to find a place to live immediately. Depositing the cash Murray gave me, which I never counted, Wasn't a good idea, though carrying around a briefcase full of Benjamin Franklin felt stupid, too. I'd survived the mugging, but I'd be broke because of my non-existent muscle tone. Never looked into a gym after I settled in. I slept in the Mercedes, kept the cash in the trunk, and found my apartment within the the first week. By then, Murray contacted me about a job emptying the file cabinets of a Philadelphia news station, faxing each to Central Network's intel, and destroying the stolen remnants. I took a bus to the Philly Fox Channel 20 headquarters, threw on a ski mask, went to the front door, and immediately had a guard step in the adjourning hallway. He was about a hundred pounds heavier than me and armed with a baton, so I ran for his legs. Put all of my weight into his waist and fell on top of him, grabbed the baton as he came to terms with the little guy taking him down, and whacked the moustached bald man in the head. And then I walked into the station in the middle of a broadcast. I made sure to plan my future heist out, but I wasn't in a position to run anymore. Channeling my best Christian Bail, I growled at the crew to turn off their cameras and not interfere. Two of the cameramen came for me, and I wasn't agile enough to take them both. I slapped the nearest one with the baton, kicking him in the testicles, and turned to the other guy right as he punched me in the right ear. Somehow, I didn't end up on my ass. My foot made it into the attacker's knee, and the baton got him right in the temple. The ginger anchor kneeled behind her desk. I'm sure someone called the police by then. But my adrenaline finally took over my thought process, so I nabbed the red head by her hair and instructed her to tell me where the main office was. (laughs) She assisted me in putting the files Murray needed in a box, and I actually thanked her as the sirens began blaring outside. Now, I regret not apologizing for hurting her because I despise violating women, The realization that I channeled my dad still gets me in the gut. By the time the arriving officer kicked in the door, I was fleeing down an alleyway and managed to get a few blocks down just as another bus arrived. My blood pressure and excitement made me jitter in my seat, which isn't out of place in Philadelphia. Hitting Atlanta on I-85 at 4 in the morning soothes my desire for vengeance as fatigue from no sleep and fighting Price set in. The first night I slept in Philly, I laid in my back seat and fumed about Monsoon using me. Tonight, I pay for parking, walk into the Four Seasons, and doze off on the elevator as the bellhop guides me to my room. I crash. No dreams. Sleep binds me to this plush bed until my eyes open enough to peer at the alarm clock. Red stripes read as a blur until I see it's five. 44 in the afternoon and I'd rather leave my eyes shut because I know I'm waking up in a new bed without Vicky she slept beside me for months and I grew accustomed to turning over to see her still asleep each morning I am exhausted from reading all this shit for god's sake oh my god where the fuck am I oh fuck okay where where was I and I'd rather leave my eyes shut because I know I'm waking up in a new bed without Vicky. She slept beside me for months and I grew accustomed to turning over to see her still asleep each morning. I knew my life as a criminal with a little apartment in Philly wouldn't fill my eternity as a man facing forever without death. With Vicki I didn't think about suicide or how I would outlive anyone I may grow close to. She was a unique woman in my path, and instead of ignoring her to save myself grief, I indulged and lost her far before I fathomed. How many more women will die, as I regret each breath I take without them? The answer to that is going to be answered... (laughs) Oh, the answer to that is going to be answered. Patrick, you're a terrible writer. Uh, That answer is in the novel, Birch. Evidently, I shouldn't find another to help me forget this sorrow. Oh, but Birch doesn't realize what's coming down the pike, does he? The best way to relieve a broken heart is to fall in love with someone new. So I'm going to wait around for the world to end with the poison that's trying to end me, yet isn't strong enough to relieve my mortality. When everyone dies, they cherish their lives because they'll lose it. I only have my life. And I can't find a way to end it. And I know killing Price won't heal my pain. But he shouldn't live if he's causing so much agony. Freundland lives down a gravel road far from any suburban or urban neighborhood. Noisy driveways are a free security system because you hear every car who drives through. And even footsteps if you're listening well enough. So I park on the side of the road and walk around the property. His house. Is almost literally made of glass, with so many windows, which is an ironically modern design for rich people. I value my privacy enough to own curtains. Freudlin isn't brewing a spell over a cauldron or raping a 14-year-old girl before dissecting her. He sits in a leather easy chair with his legs propped up, hands supported, supporting his, ha- his head. I'm losing the will to read people. As he watches television. Evil people do normal things too, I suppose. I still so I can comfortably watch TV too. All I want is to know where Price is. And I'm not physically imposing enough to frighten this guy. Freudlin could call the police and I'd leave. But I am the figurehead of the Trinity. The one person on earth no one can kill. Shouldn't that make people fear me? I follow an unmarked path through some grass to avoid making any noise. Climbing up a support post on the back porch, I pull myself up to see Freudlin dozing in his chair with a sig sour. I blast the back window open, glass flying, and awaken the dull bastard. From the research I gathered for Murray, I pictured Freudlin as calm and confident. He hired Ken Price, after all. Men in power don't seek those they fear to do their dirty work. They find a capable pawn. Price is only as powerful as Freudland allows. Yet this man who's built a secret corporate empire to rise against Central Network not only flinches at my arrival, he freezes in a panic rather than grabbing a weapon or even hiding. Mr. Freudland. I walk through his living room with a Sig Sauer at my side. I'm looking for Ken Price. "'You,' he says. "'I didn't sense you were here.' "'That means I'm a decent covert thief, then. "'But I don't think Freudlin means he didn't hear me. "'Sense is a strange word unless you're a green Jedi.' "'Where's Price?' I ask. "'Who are you?' he asks. "'Are you working for Satan?' I didn't know Freudlin was a junk was a druggie, because he just accused me of working for the devil. Maybe that makes sense to him since he's drowsy, but his eyes reflect a reality I'm unfamiliar with. He believes what he's saying. Price worked for you, I say, and he's hiding somewhere. Wait, he says, he left for Philadelphia. He was looking for Veronica Price. Who is Veronica Price? My breath stops at her name. Vicky wasn't open about her past or even her real name. We had an unspoken agreement that we accepted each other as is, and there was no judgment or questions about our identities. But if Ken was seeking someone with Murray Grone's phone number, and Vicky was actually related to Ken, then I'm confused as to how I continue this line of inquiry. You're the boyfriend, Freudland says. I didn't even think to find out who you were. Nor should you, I say. Was Veronica his sister or something? Cousin, Freudlin arches an eyebrow. But that's not why Ken was looking for her. He asked for Marie Grone's phone number, I say. At gunpoint. Cupping his face into his palms, Freudlin exhales and looks at me with his jaw, grasping at something. It's like we're putting together a puzzle. Thought was of separate images. One of us knows what the finished picture may look like, but we're afraid to put it together. Because Veronica was Grome's daughter, Freudlin says. In what universe does this coincidence occur? Did Veronica or Vicky try to find me? Was Murray behind our entire relationship? And she was Ken Price's cousin? So she's directly connected to two members of the Trinity. If Murray knew I was invincible, why did he never cajole me into stopping Price? Did he want to keep me a secret? What's your name? Freudlin points. Tell me. Birch. I say, I work for Central Network, or rather Murray groan. And you're looking for Price, he asked, meaning you survived? Ken obviously didn't hurt you. I broke his ankle and stabbed him in the shoulder, I say. You're aware of the Trinity, Mr. Freudland. That's why I can't sense you, he grows excited. You're the figurehead, you and I are both God's servants. As I try to grasp this man's insanity, he, di- he disappears. I look around the room and back at the chair to find him, yet freudlin has gone, and a draft blows against my neck, but with an inhale I recognize it as him breathing against me. I'm uncertain how to process all of this, and I wonder if I'm stuck in a dream in that Four Seasons hotel room. Nothing i do he says, can affect you. What are you talking about? First, I feel heat. Then the light forces my eyes closed, and just as it disappears, I see the circle of fire around us. Freudland produces a flame in his hand and presses it against me, yet I'm unmarred. This is no surprise to me, since my sick sour cannot break my skin, but it bears significance to Freudland, this is God's light, he says. I wield it in his name. You're meant to destroy the Trinity and protect mankind from Satan's end game. Fine, I say, but I need to know where Price is. Allowing his magic show to rest, Freudlin settles back in his chair, crossing his legs and smirks. He wants to unsettle me, but fear is for those who run from death. I see a parallel, Freudland says. Bryce nearly killed me to find Veronica, and he really wanted Murray. Unfortunately, I don't know where Ken's hiding. But you work for the perfect bait. So next week we're going to get into Murray's next chapter. I'm not sure. I think we'll probably end up finishing part one or at least get to Lilith's chapter Um, the novel is going to speed up significantly but uh, beyond that I hope you're enjoying this I'm at a loss for words because my brain has stopped working from reading all that but this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast happy reading happy writing go listen to my other fucking episodes